So I'm glad to be here. Um, that is true. I did meet my wife here. I grew up here. Um, my dad taught here. My brothers went here. We all went here for free. My wife obviously went here. Her sister went here. Um, so I love Wake Forest. A lot of connections to Wake Forest. I stole money from Wake Forest, as I mentioned in my sermon on Sunday, uh, right over there at the law school when I was little. So um, a lot of love for Wake Forest. And um, I'm going to, I'm a, I'm a pastor at Salem Pres. Um, Coleman didn't say that. And I'm going to talk about the, uh, the church as the bride of Christ. That's what I want to talk about. And um, I want you to know how much God loves you and how his love for you is, is not like that kind of a stoic love. Um, it's not just like a, an impassive love where he couldn't really care that much, but it's like this passionate love that is um, whatever you felt for any you know, person in your life romantically, um, it's, it's like that, but then way beyond that. So that's what I want to talk about. And this is uh, from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And it seems like it's about marriage, but if you read between the lines, you'll notice that it's really more about Christ's love for the church than it is about two humans being married. But this is uh, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Move into the middle here. Um, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24, where Moses writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now I know that uh, you know that's a hard passage, especially for women. Um, the submit idea is in there, and uh, that's been abused over the course of centuries, and is really hard to hear. Um, I'll, I'll just tell you this about that: in, in Paul's own day, uh, this would have been like radically progressive for his audience, um, because. Because at that time, no philosophers, uh, no religious leaders were ever even given the woman any chance to listen to what they were saying. They would just talk to the men and say to the men, this is how you rule your wives. But Paul is actually addressing women, and that dignifies them. And so I won't go into that right now, but just so you know, um, in, in Paul's day, this would have been like extremely radically progressive. In our day, it seems regressive. But, um, but I don't want to talk so much about husbands and wives as I want to talk about, like I said, that... The church is the bride of Christ, and Christ loves the church as a groom does a bride. And really, this passage has way more to say about that than it does about marriage, because, because marriage um, is much bigger than us. Um, you know, the Bible actually begins with a wedding. 
So this, this uh, verse here that he quotes in verse, in verse 31, that, that is a verse about the marriage of Adam and Eve. And so the whole Bible begins with a, with a marriage. Um, Genesis 2.24, man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two will become one flesh. That is actually the climax of the creation story. So any, any good movie, any story comes to a climax at its most important point. Well, the, the most important part of the creation story in the Bible is this marriage between a man and a woman. That's an incredible thing. But then, even more incredible, the, the Bible ends with another marriage, another wedding. Uh, Revelation 21.1, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And so you can imagine, just as Adam was waiting for Eve to come, to, to sing to her, to praise her, uh, Jesus is waiting for his bride to come, the same way. So the climax of creation, the climax of history, redemption, all about a marriage. And... Um, when you get to the Gospels, you see Jesus talking about himself as a groom uh, all the time. He, he is the bridegroom who's come for his bride. And um, he quotes Genesis 2.24 as well. He quotes that when he's talking about marriage, that from the beginning that was God's vision for marriage. He didn't, God never intended for there to be divorce. It was always these two holding fast to one another, becoming one flesh. And so um, that's why Paul is saying that that passage in Genesis is really more about Christ than it was about Adam and Eve. And so in verse 32, he says, this is a profound mystery. And that's kind of an understatement that the two becoming one flesh is actually about Christ and the church. Because if you think about what the two becoming one flesh is, it's sensual, it's sexual, it's physical. And so what Paul is saying that really what that's all about is, is this passionate union between Jesus Christ and the church. I, um, as a pastor, do a lot of weddings um, and um, I'm not always kind of respected entirely as the person who is doing the wedding. So, for instance, uh, one time a mother of the bride came up to me at the, uh, at the rehearsal dinner. And um, she was like, you know, it's going to be really hot tomorrow. And so if you could just make your little part in all this kind of short, that way we can get, to the, we can get on to the, um, to the reception. And I feel like um, that sometimes the way that I am viewed is like that the, the photographer... And the flower person and the dress and the cake and the dancing and all that, the food, that's, that's way more important. And my little part is like this little sideshow. But actually, um, you know, just so you know, that in a, in a marriage or in a wedding, the, the really important thing is the covenant union between the, the two people. It's the vows. It's the, it's the ceremony. It's the worship service. And, uh, and Ephesians 5 here says that really that all of that is all about Jesus and his passion for his church. So... What I want to look at in this passage is these two things. Number one, the original marriage between Adam and Eve. And then number two, the way that that informs the marriage of Christ and the church. So the marriage of Adam and Eve, and then the way that that is a window into the marriage of Christ and the church. So when God made us, um, point one, when God made us, it says he made us in his image. And I, I was trying to think about how do, you, how, do you, how do you describe that or... How do you explain what the image of God is? That we're made in the image of God. It's kind of like, I think one way to think about it is an avatar. You know, we now have this idea that you can have something that is kind of like you, that you can portray out there, and you can make, and uh, it represents you. And that is what humans were to God. And God is relational. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one being. And so when he made us, uh, guess what? He made us to be relational, to be personal. And so the, 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 the idea of, of Adam and Eve being kind of together in the image of God, not just individually, but that their union together is the image of God, 
That's because God is relationship. And so they had to be relationship. And relationships are the most important thing in the world. And you see that, as I said, at the climax of the creation story, where Adam meets Eve. And um, they, they quickly fall in love because there's no one else to fall in love with. And they get married. There's no one else to marry. It's like the ultimately arranged marriage. But um, there's actually this very beautiful scene where when Adam sees her coming, um, he's been put to sleep. Eve comes up. He's never seen a woman. He's only seen these animals that he's named, but none of them were a suitable helper for him. So then he sees Eve coming up. And um, I like to always ask couples, like, tell, tell me when you first met. What was it like when you first saw each other? Um, did you, what, what kind of feeling did you have? And I think Adam would say, when I saw her, the first thing I did was I just immediately started singing. It was so powerful. And the very first poetry in the whole Bible is Adam's song to Eve in Genesis 2.23. He says, now at last, after all those animals, this is now me, but not me. This is bone of my bone. And flesh of my flesh. She's just like me, but she's not at all like me. And it's that amazing thing that uh, God has created in, in marriage. And you know, if you just think about your favorite um, movie, kind of romantic comedy or chick flick or whatever you want to call it, like the, the best romance you've ever seen in a movie. Um, it's got nothing on the original uh, wedding and marriage of Adam and Eve. So, you know, the, the movies like Titanic... Um, haven't seen A Star is Born, but I've heard that's a very good romance. And La La Land in his own strange way and kind of a twisted way is a really beautiful romance. For me, it's The Princess Bride. I love The Princess Bride um, and Wesley and Buttercup and um, the storybook love. You know, I have the soundtrack, listen to that soundtrack. But, but none of that is anything close to what they would have experienced in that original uh, marriage, that, that original wedding. The two becoming one flesh in verse 24 is really the heart of it. The man and the woman cleave to one another uh, forever and the two become one flesh. And it's not like you have a half and a half and you add up two halves and they become a whole. It's more like you have these two things that are totally distinct, like puzzle pieces that don't seem like they would fit, but then you put them together and they lock, interlock perfectly. So it's two becoming one instead of one half and one half adding up to one. And one flesh uh, is more than physical union. It is also, I would say, it's very emotional. And really, hopefully, emotional before physical. It's very psychological. It's even got legal implications. So when you get married to someone, um, you know, legally, you're now one. Um, Hopefully, you share the same bank account. I recommend that. Uh, Same children, hopefully. Same house, same pets. uh, there's this union of two things into one that is uh, really a spectacular idea that sometimes we don't really step back from and think about. Uh, we take it for granted, but it's really an amazing thing that God has made there. And um, one thing I especially love about it is that the two are very, very different. Um, they're, they're, they're really, really different. And uh, they're physically different, obviously. They're, they're emotionally more different than I would say they're physically different. They're also psychologically different, they feel differently, think differently, talk differently. Um, When I first met my wife, um, it was not out there, that was not the first time we had met. We met actually in in London, overseas, and um, I had met other women, obviously, before, but I hadn't really gotten to know them very much. (laughs) I had never really had a lot of conversation with them. So beginning to interact with Margie was uh, a little bit like meeting you know, like a 19th century Russian peasant. Like, I couldn't, not that she was the peasant and I was the Lord, but 
you know, so, it was so different. It was like meeting a foreigner, a stranger. Like, I, we, uh, I did not think the same way she thought. It was disorienting, and it was wonderful. And she asked me questions about, you know, my, my feelings. Like, that was not something that I was used to being asked about. Um, she made observations about me. Like, very early on, you don't seem like the type of guy that would like parties. And I felt like, like I had never let anyone see that about me. And you know, I like, kept that very clandestine and under the under the radar, but she immediately saw that and pointed it out. Uh, she would say things like, did you notice how Catherine and John were like sitting really close at dinner and they were talking to each other and kind of, you know, they seemed like they were interested. Do you think there's anything to that? And I was like, the bread was really good. I, I did not notice the social interactions of the other people in our group. I was at Rinaldi Gardens on Friday, and if you were over there, it was a beautiful day. There were a ton of kids dressed up with like tuxedos and beautiful dresses and it was prom night in our in our city and um so my daughter was there all these high school kids were there they had their dates with them they were taking pictures and it was interesting they would take the picture with their date and then as soon as they finished taking their picture they would they'd kind of scurry back into little groups of guys and girls <laughs> they would it was kind of like parallel play with little toddlers in a nursery where they're kind of playing with each other but they're not they're playing with their own stuff and so um, the point there being that um, the two becoming one flesh, that idea is you've got these two very different kinds of creatures that God is taking this risk with bringing them together. And I think part of the reason that the divorce rate is very high is because it's a big risk. It's really hard. It's hard for two creatures that are the same but not the same, kind of perplexing, extraordinary, fascinating, but also sometimes infuriating how different we are. And that's why Paul calls this a great mystery. And um, I didn't read this verse, but Genesis 2.25 is a verse after Genesis 2.24. And uh, that verse says that after they became one flesh, it says that they were naked and unashamed. Uh, the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. And that's not just um, taking off your clothes. That's actually more about total emotional, uh, psychological vulnerability and openness and honesty where you actually are letting the other person look into the nooks and crannies of your life. And I think the longer you're married or know someone, the more you do that, the more closets you open up, the more skeletons you reveal, uh, the most shameful stories from childhood, the most evil thoughts in your head that go through your mind. You just trust this person. Uh, you can be naked in front of them and not ashamed. Usually the more naked you are, the more ashamed you're going to be. So you, that's why you don't get naked. But with with marriage, with the two becoming one flesh union between Adam and Eve, you're able to be both uh, vulnerable and yet with no shame. Someone once told me, never take your clothes off your body in front of another person unless you've taken your clothes off of your soul first. And I think that's that idea of um, needing true vulnerability um, emotionally and psychologically, mentally, spiritually, before physically. So that's, that's the first point. Uh, is the wedding of Adam and Eve. And all that is really just all about verse 31 there that Paul is kind of drilling down into when he's talking about Christ and the church. He's talking about Genesis 2.24. That's how God set it up in creation in the Garden of Eden, uh, marriage and romance. But now, point two, Paul is saying that it was always bigger than Adam and Eve. So all that I've said to you so far, it was not ultimately about that. If you've seen those wedding cakes where there are those little wax figurines um, that would be like Adam and Eve compared to the reality of Christ and the church. Not that they're not real. I mean, obviously, Adam and Eve are real. 
our marriages are real, but um, it was compared to Christ like the wax figurine compared to the real person. So that's the second point. Uh, Again, Paul says, this is a profound mystery, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I um, once knew someone and uh, his girlfriend broke up with him and he was, he had not dated this guy and he was shocked and devastated by this. He couldn't believe how shattered he was by that and uh, like couldn't really do anything almost, somewhat paralyzed, I mean, not, not literally physically, but just couldn't get anything done. And his friends were telling him, look, it's, you know, that happens to all of us. Uh, it's not that big a deal. You'll get over this. And then I was talking to this person, and I was like, no, actually, I would say that uh, it is a very big deal. You know, when, when my girlfriend broke up with me, um, I couldn't, like, that, I couldn't do any studying that week. I could barely eat. I just didn't want to eat. And so I, I, I was like, it is a, it's a big deal. God says it's a big deal. Because the, um, the, the Song of Songs is this entire Bible book. It's not terribly short either. Uh, it's not very well known. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the wisdom literature. But, you know, God doesn't choose to inspire that many books. The Bible's not that huge. And of those books, he chooses one to be all about the romance between these two teenagers, uh, a boy and a girl. And it's very sensual. It's very explicit. I would encourage you to read it. It's very beautiful. Uh, Jews were not allowed to read it until they were 30, so maybe I shouldn't have done that. Um, Jewish people back then when it was written were not allowed to read it until they were either married or they were 30. So um, that tells you about the Song of Songs. But interestingly, in the Middle Ages, especially among uh, the monks and, and the nuns, that was their favorite book, which might sound kind of perverted or weird. But I think the reason that it was is because they saw it as mostly about God's love for the human soul. And so the most famous uh, monk of the Middle Ages was a a man named Bernard of Clairvaux. And he wrote 86 sermons on the Song of Songs. 86 sermons. On the very first verse, he wrote two sermons. And here's how the first verse goes. Uh, Kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. That's the very first verse. So that's what, two sermons on that. And they were both about God's passionate love for his creatures, for humans made in his image. And my point in saying all this is if you've ever had those feelings of being in love, even just a crush, not, not necessarily a huge, uh, powerful emotion, but any small emotion, what God is saying, and it's hard to believe this, but it's, it's, it's right here, that those are not just complex chemical reactions going on in your brain. I mean, it is that. But that's reductionistic. It is primarily, according to this passage, it is an intimation of immortality. That that is what ultimate reality is really like. That um, study.com is wrong. Study.com says that uh, the evolutionary theory of love proposes that love functions to attract and retain a mate for the purpose of reproducing and then caring for the resulting offspring. So, in other words, you fall in love um, because you're being tricked by your genes into wanting to produce offspring and to keep the species going. That's the evolutionary theory of love. And um, I think what the Bible is saying here is that actually, no, falling in love is older than the human brain. You know, the human brain has been around like maybe 200,000 years, so love didn't start with the human brain. It's even older than life, all of evolution, which is apparently like 4.1 uh, billion years of evolution. It's older than that. It's older than the earth. It's older than the universe. That love, uh, 
even romantic love is, is actually right at the heart of who God is. That in some ways, if you want to know what God is like and what God's love is like, dig into those feelings of being in love. Listen to Hosea 2, 14 through 20. Behold, uh, God is speaking to Israel. I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness. Think about like going on a date to a retreat somewhere by yourself with the person you love. I will bring her into the wilderness and I will speak kindly to her. And she will call me my husband. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And this is the interesting part. Then it says, and then you will know that I am the Lord. Then, when you realize my passion for you. Um, like a young lover wooing his bride. Listen to this passage from James. This is in the New Testament. James chapter 4, verse 3. James is thought to be something like stodgy, kind of uh, grumpy, old curmudgeon. But James says that God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. God yearns jealously. He's jealous for you. I love uh, the movie Say Anything. That was an 80s movie. That was my generation. And if you've seen that, uh, John Cusack's one of my favorite actors. There's, a, there's this famous scene where he's, um, he's out in the pouring rain, and uh, he's the, the, right near the window. It's kind of like the Romeo and Juliet scene where she's up in the window in her house, and, and he wants to call her back to himself. So uh, their favorite song is Peter Gabriel's In Your Eyes. So he's in the pouring rain holding up a jam box like this over his head, playing in your eyes, and the rain's just pouring on his head. And uh, the lyrics say, in your eyes, the light, the heat, I am complete. In your eyes, I see the doorway to a thousand churches. In your eyes, I see the resolution of all of the fruitless searching. And uh, if, you know, they're teenagers in the movie. So if, if a teenage boy and girl can generate that kind of energy with the with that, the difference between them, the tension, the fascination, um, then how much more God and the human soul, right? Because I, I've been saying that it's, it's kind of the difference that creates um, the energy. You know, if you know about physics, I was a physics major, and it's not that high voltage is what kills you. So the science is danger high voltage. It's not voltage that kills you. It's the difference in voltage, so if you touch a high-voltage line and touch the ground, then you're dead. If you touch the high-voltage line in two places, you're fine. But it's God and humans. It's the difference that when they touch, that's where the current, like, just, that's where the explosion happens. And, I mean, like, the difference in man and woman is nothing compared to the difference in God and humanity and the soul. And so when you have God and man, like, right together, so vastly unlike each other, that's where the intimacy just surges in. And um, my application of this is you should go to church on Sunday, which seems like really kind of a mundane and almost dumb application. But um, I know this is one of the things that John is really emphasizing in these sermons is that you should go to church somewhere on Sunday. You don't have to come to Salem, but the energy is housed in the church. And I would specifically say uh, in the Lord's Supper, because uh, in the Lord's Supper, you could say heaven and earth meet and touch. And that's where the explosions happen. You don't always feel it when you take it, but that is where the real presence of Christ uh, dwells on planet earth, is in that meal. Somehow, somewhere in the bread and the wine and the communion of God and his people, uh, it's something you can't get in a quiet time. 
As important as that is, your personal devotional is very important. Even this is fantastic and very important, but there's something about that experience at church. Uh, Because Paul doesn't say, husbands, love your wives uh, as Christ loved each one of you individually. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, the people of God, a community of people. And so I would say that you really can't experience the full depths of the high-voltage love of God unless you are with other people, uh, in relationship with other people. And I would say that there's a lot of that that happens here. So I'm not saying that none of that happens here. A lot of that happens here. It is, um, it is when you are with other people loving each other that you really begin to experience the full passion of God. So, um, because his bride is a group of people. His bride is not just one individual, but it's a group of people. It's a group of people loving each other. That is what his bride is. That's what he's coming to love. And uh, so if you can imagine like two scenes, on the one hand, you've got someone, you know, in Rinaldi Gardens, blanket laid out with their Bible, sitting in a field, praying, feeling the love of God. That's an amazing experience. I've had that experience. Uh, For me, I love to run and pray and I feel, you know, God's pleasure as I do that. Um, But imagine another experience where instead of that, and this is important, but in this one, you're coming down the aisle uh, to receive communion and there's someone right there with you. Uh, who's cheated on you or who has just hurt you in some terrible way and you take communion together. And that's, that's the difference, I think, between just in the individual love of God and the soul versus the church and the body of Christ and the people of God. Another example would be um, when apartheid ended in, in South Africa and a lot of churches, they had a communion service. And so, uh, you know, people who are formally opposed to each other, black and white South Africans, would take the Lord's Supper together. And there was a union there, both with each other and with God, that brought in that power of the love of God. Because I would say that the love of God is always going to be a little bit uncomfortable. He always pushes us out of our comfort zones. Uh, He always forces us to interact with people we wouldn't choose. That's why the church is not a place where you choose the people there. Because his desire is to make us beautiful. His desire is to make us um, splendid, beautiful. to make us like a mansion, um, to um, become a human being um, in order to, as it says here, sanctify us, verse 25, to cleanse us, to wash us with water. And then this is so beautiful, to present us to himself in splendor, like that he would make us uh, just in gowns of beauty without any spot or wrinkle or any blemish at all, totally holy, God wanted to do that so much that he actually became a human and died in order to make that happen, to make us beautiful, to make us a bride that is uh, worthy of his love. And here's, I'll end with this verse. This is, the, this is the direction that all of history is, everything is moving in life, is Revelation, again, the very end of the Bible, Revelation 19, 7 through 9. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her.